We're going to take a turn because of some things that have, are going on among us, um, not necessarily within our body, but just in our city. And uh, I, I believe in trying to listen to what God is doing in our city. I believe in trying to listen and what God wants to do through our church. In order to do that, that means a guy like me has to put aside um, my agenda, which is the book of Luke, which I think is very much what we need to do, but put that aside for a moment to try and listen to what God may want to do in and through this church um, as he's trying to do something in this city. So today we're going to look at a completely different and sort of random story for where we are in our series. Um, in the Christian calendar, today is the day of Pentecost. Uh, 2,000 plus years ago, Pentecost happened. And so uh, it's kind of odd that what we're going to do is step back a week before Passover, but that is where we're going to go. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, if you would, turn to Matthew 21. So right now, right now, this moment in South, Af South America, a woman with cerebral palsy has been lying in her bed for seven years in a back bedroom of a cinder block home. Right now in Africa, a young girl with Down syndrome is left on a riverbank to die because her parents believe she's a bad omen. Right now in Western nations, lest we think this is just the uneducated third world folk, disabled infants are sometimes starved to death before they are a week old. Right now in Asia, a slum dweller with polio is told he must journey through eight reincarnations before he can be considered a whole person. Right now in our world, stories like these are being written all over the place. Stories of injustice, stories of marginalization. Stories of injustice that plague our world. Injustice, church, biblically defined, is anything that is unfair, unright, unrighteous, I should say, or demeans or dehumanizes people's God-given worth and value. I'm going to repeat myself. Injustice, biblically defined, is anything that demeans or dehumanizes people's God-given worth and value. Injustice always keeps people from being all that God created them to be. You cannot blame sin alone for injustice. You have to blame sin working its way through a prideful, rebellious humanity. Sin didn't just generically push a woman to the back room. Sin didn't just generically tell a person he had to go through re reincarnations to be whole. People are the instruments of this rebellion and sin. Are we clear? Injustice is because of sin in the world, no mistake. But then when humanity turns its back on God and God's given value and worth in every human being, then man becomes a player in this, just this terrible game called injustice. When you read your Bibles, you're going to find two root causes of sin every time. Idolatry and injustice. The only reason pride makes man go against God is because somewhere along that line, man wants to worship himself or herself. Therefore, that is idolatry. Idolatry always gives birth to justice because that means I can make the rules as to who's in and who's out. That's idolatry because God says anybody can be in and nobody should be out. You follow me? This is very important. This is very real. So... In our text, it's a week before Passover, and many God-fearing worshipers have journeyed miles and miles both to prepare for and take part in this great festival. Getting there a week early was important for Jews back in this day because 
It was going to allow them to carry out the necessary preparation and purification rituals. Finally, when Passover arrives, they would honor God for his deliverance and be reminded of all that he had done and be reminded of who they are as God's people. And so now on Palm Sunday, after Jesus' triumphant entry on his humble donkey with the crowd that cheered him on crying Hosanna, Jesus goes to God's house, what, what they believed at the time and what was indeed God's house, the temple. And it is when he walks into this temple that Jesus witnesses a terrible injustice. Religious people ripping the common worshiper off by forcing them to buy their overpriced sacrifice animals. Which in turn places an unnecessary obstacle between them and God, the common folk and God. It hinders many from drawing close to God. Mark's account says that Jesus just looked around that day because it was late. So Mark's account says Jesus went in and looked around and just kind of checked it out. And then Matthew comes in and says Jesus went in and he just began to flip the tables over on that Monday. Matthew 21 verse 12. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, so here's a scripture reference, Jesus quoting Bible here, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children in the temple complex cheering, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read you have restored praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants? Can you feel the emotion in the text? At all, just look at the text. Jesus sees what's happening. He goes in, he turns over tables out of anger. Then the religious people get indignant. And then the religious people are indignant because once Jesus chases all the crooks out of the temple and all the religious presumptuous, prideful people out of the temple, that's when the lame and the cripple come in. Those who were both buying and selling were creating unnecessary hindrances for people to come and make offerings of worship to God. Unless you had money or unless your offerings met some kind of standard set by the priests at this point, who were also going to set the pro who also set the prophet in this endeavor? You could not worship. So if you brought in your dove and your dove didn't meet the qualifications, even though it did meet the qualifications, but the priest at that moment said it didn't meet the qualifications, and you had to buy their dove, what would you do if you were too poor to buy their dove? You wouldn't be allowed into the temple. Your chance of offering purification ritual and worship is just off now. It's off the table. And if you wanted to, which you did because you were a Yahweh worshiper and you had traveled miles after miles after miles, you had traveled to come here that day with your family to worship God on this great, profound identity day. This is the greatest memorial weekend of their lives. Unless you have the money, you can't get in. Hundreds of people, hundreds of miles. And what Jesus sees is injustice, and when he sees this happening, he's filled with a jealous love. And Jesus comes back to the temple after that visit with one intention, to demonstrate his jealous and furious love when he turns over the tables and drives out those who are both buying and selling. They had turned this house of prayer for all nations, and when the Bible says for all nations, because that's what Isaiah says, which we'll talk about in a minute, it means for all people 
they turned it into a den of robbers. These tables, church, represented injustice because they stood in the way of people coming into God's presence to experience His holy love, healing, and restoration. See, the religious leaders, the, the well-informed, the authoritative ones, had allowed this injustice to take place. And we don't know why. Perhaps it was subtle. Maybe they didn't realize what was happening. Or perhaps it was intentional, motivated by greed. Or, or, or maybe they stood as some sort of power play. Either way, the outcome was the same. People weren't allowed to come in, and Jesus wasn't having it. And so he turned over these tables and literally cleared the way for people to draw closer to God. Church, when Jesus turns over tables, you either run away from him or you run to him. And in this story, many ran away from him because of his justice and jealous love. But see, some ran to him. What's often looked over in this text is verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex and he healed them. See, what's amazing about this verse is religious leaders were keeping out even the blind and the lame. What's amazing about this verse is religious leaders had a jacked up interpretation of Torah that said that the blind and lame weren't allowed into the temple complex. When Jesus turns over tables and clears out the injustice, that and that alone is when the blind and the lame can come in and find healing and hope. They run to Jesus now because all the obstacles are out of the way. And God welcomes them. He welcomes them in. When Jesus turned over tables, he was cleansing the temple and clearing the way for all people to experience renewal and restoration. Not just the select few, not the popular, powerful, or prestigious but the broken and the wounded and the scarred, the least, the last, the left out. All people. And the powerful, prestigious, and the popular could have stayed if they would have repented. They could have been a part of this. But when you read the Bible, you see that oftentimes the powerful, prestigious, and popular aren't interested in being anything less than powerful, prestigious, and popular. And Jesus ain't having that. Because if the cross teaches us anything is that power comes through self-giving love. Power comes through sacrifice. The most powerful in the world died for the least powerful in the world who thought we were the most powerful. And Jesus cleanses the way. When he says in verse 13, it is written, my house will be a called a house of prayer. I want you to look at your sheet and look at Isaiah 56. This is Jesus quoting Isaiah 56. And there would be no doubt that religious leaders had Isaiah 56 memorized. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, this is what the religious leaders who had Isaiah memorized would, say, would remember. Isaiah 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says, preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation is coming soon and my justice will be revealed. Happy is the man who does this, anyone who maintains this, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, who keeps his hands from doing any evil. No foreigner who has converted to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. <laughs> I love the Bible. This, Isaiah is saying like, not even the foreigner should say, God won't accept me. 
Not even the eunuch who's completely in, in their society, completely unuseful, right? He shouldn't say, God has no place for me. Verse 4, for the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what please me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be caught off. Church, what if you were a eunuch and you were in Isaiah's presence and you heard Isaiah say this? Everybody, I mean, first off, you wouldn't be in Isaiah's presence too much. Maybe you might be shifted out. But what if you heard these words? What that do? Nobody wants you. You are not a man, even physically, in their definition. I love God who does this. Verse six: and the foreigners, the immigrants, the strangers, the ones who aren't from around here, the come here's, not the from here's who convert to the Lord, minister to Him, love the Lord's name and are His servants and keep a Sabbath without desecrating and hold firmly to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. The burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar and Jesus' quote, and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God forgive us. Give me for drawing lines in the sand of who's in and who's out. This is the Lord saying that foreigners, eunuchs, and the very broken people that have long been excluded from having a place in the presence of God would in Jesus Christ have a place. This is a messianic prophecy, a messianic text. When Jesus turns over the tables of injustice, he's clearing away for these marginalized, ignored, undervalued, broken people to have a place before God. And what religious leaders had misunderstood is that these broken people were loved by God just as much as anyone. And he wanted to be known by them too. Not only that, but anyone who desires to worship God and bring him offerings can do so without hindrance or being ripped off and turned away. You and I can't look into a person's heart when they walk into this building no matter what they did two hours before. If they show up... Our job is to make room for them. Our job is to say, you're welcome here. Our job is to say, come and be with us as we worship our God together. That is what the church should do. When a church doesn't do this, they're not a church of Jesus. They're a church of men and women. Or a man or a woman. Unless you think I'm being too presumptuous myself or bold, just read the text. And see, in this story, all of this will be made abundantly clear what Jesus is saying because in four days, the journey will begin. Brutally murdered and put on a cross because you think this is popular? You think this is a popular welcome message? And you know what? Jesus is still turning over tables. I think God wants us to know that the Lord is still turning over tables. Except now, and I need you to hear this, please. This is important. This is, this is theology stuff. This is important. Except now, Jesus is not turning over tables in buildings. He's turning over tables in what's called his new temple. What the Bible calls his new temple. And that is the hearts of us. 
See, we are the temple of God now. You and I, the Bible says when the Spirit of God comes in us, we become the temple of God. Jesus is still turning over tables over in the temple, but the temple is inside you and me. Not buildings anymore. Because to turn tables over in buildings isn't going to get it done. To turn tables over in human hearts, that's going to get it done. We're the temple of God, and Jesus wants to come into our lives and turn over the tables of our hearts that are the tables of injustice, that are the injustice tables that were built and handed to us because people betrayed us, because people marginalized us, because of things happened to us because we were abandoned. Those are a table of injustice that other people build. They hand it to us. They put it there. We put them in our hearts, and we're broken because of it. Jesus wants to come in and turn that table over and say to us, you can be with me. No matter what your mama did or your daddy did or your friend did or your brother did or your wife did or your husband did or your children did, Jesus comes into the temple of God in the heart and he says to you, he is saying to you right now, no matter what it is, I can turn that over. I will turn that table over. I will clear the way for you to come into my presence fully and find healing and restoration. That is what Jesus does. But then there's another table he has to turn over. There's another table he has to turn over, usually a table of sin. The table of sin in our lives where it's self-induced consequences, where we do these things and choose these things that get in the way. This unrepentant, ignored sin that we just embrace because we feel like it. Jesus comes in and he wants to turn those tables over too. See, some of you may be feeling a sense of conviction, a sense of stirring right now. And if you are, that's Jesus turning over a table. See, the reality of Jesus turning over these tables of injustice, what's true in the text is still true today. When Jesus turns over the tables of injustice, some run away or some run to him. When Jesus comes and convicts us of sin, we either run from him or run to him. When Jesus comes and convicts us of our hopelessness and our shame and our betrayal that was just handed to us due to a broken world, we then choose still whether we run to him or whether we run from him. See, there's a third table. The third table that's often built, the third table of injustice is usually built by the church itself. You know I love the church. Wouldn't give my life away to it if I didn't. But you know we've got to be honest with the church. And that includes us. Because we're the church. The reality of it is, whether or not we like it, the church has done her fair share of building tables of injustice. I mean, think about this. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And just bear with me. We all know who Jesus is. Why do we need, and I'm just asking, why do we need to come together in a building to be told to do things we know we should be doing? I'm serious. Like, why should Christians be told that they have to love the poor? Or love each other? Like why, why, why do we have to be told that? I really shouldn't have a job. Why does the church need prophets and pastors and teachers, apostles and evangelists? Because we have to be told that, including me. I have to be reminded of who I am. I just think it's strange. I think it's strange that we have to be reminded to be like Jesus. I'm not talking to me, just you. 
And so it shouldn't be surprising that the church has built up enough tables of injustice. And let me, if you don't know whether you and I have been guilty of this or not, I mean, I'm not going to propose your guilt, but just think about this. If you've ever judged another person among us and purposely made them feel inferior or less of a person, that's injustice. When you've gossiped about another in order to tear them down, injustice. When we demean, dehumanize, or marginalize another person simply because of their sin, now I'm not talking about pointing out the truth of the kingdom of God and the kind of life Jesus invites us into. I'm talking about the mean-spirited stuff we often hear on radio and see on TV and sometimes here at the water cooler. I'm talking about the mean-spirited stuff that Christians often do in the name of Jesus. When we do that, that's injustice. When we talk down to someone because they, need, because they voted for the other party, injustice. When we corrected a person's way of worship because they didn't worship the way we do or prefer, and it's not rooted in theology, it's not rooted in scripture, injustice. When we belittle someone because they have a different hairstyle or too many tattoos or don't wear the right kind of church clothes, injustice. And don't forget that the context of Jesus is turning over tables. It was the church leaders that allowed the temple to become a place of dens and robbers. It was the religious people that made it complicated for the other folks to come in, resulting in making the less privileged, less powerful, and less popular people the last, the least, and the left out. And I want to offer some real-life examples. Just last month, a Catholic nun who runs a group home for intellectually disabled and mentally ill men and women was asked by leaders of churches in this area, in our area, to not bring her residents back to church because they were too disruptive. Because they're intellectually disabled or mentally ill, they're not allowed in. They're too disruptive. How? Why? Well, they got up a lot during the service. They have a hard time sitting still. So while the preacher was preaching, they'd get up, go to the bathroom, get coffee, spill it, make noise, all that. And so the church thought that it was more important to have a quiet church service, a church service the way we want to have it, than to let the last and the least and the left out among us in. I got a call. from a dear sister who called me and said, Fred, do you know of a church that will accept these men and women? And in my head, I thought, well, yeah, us. And then she asked appropriately, you think so? And I said, be honest with you, we've got to ask Jesus that question. This is not your church or my church. It's not the elders' church. We don't get to say who comes in and comes out. We understand that. We get that, right? We get that in this church. We've got to ask Jesus, and i got a feeling I know what Jesus is going to say. And if Jesus says something that we're not willing to do, one of two things have to happen. We've got to change. Well, only one thing has to happen. We have to change. I can't think of the other thing. So why do I bring this up today? Why do we skip Luke? Why do I offer this? Well, next week, we're going to have anywhere between 8 and 15 of these men and women join us for church service. And we may have them the week after, and the week after, and the week after, and the week after, and on and on. I would not want to be a part of any other church but this church. I don't want to work with, serve with, be a part of any other church but this church. 
I want to be a part of this church because I've seen this church love people that some other people in among us that other Christians don't love. And I've seen this church love people not just on a Sunday, but on a Saturday and on a Tuesday night. I've seen this church do things that so much so that I'm asked all the time to tell our church's story. I was asked to write in a lame, I'm a terrible writer, but I was asked to write in a magazine to tell this church's story. I'm constantly telling God's story through this church, not to brag on this church, but to brag on what God has been allowed to do in this church. You, church, you have hearts. We, we, this church is willing to let God have its way. Now, not all of you are. Some of you have been kicking and screaming. And some of you have been doing it privately. Most the ones who do it do it privately. Some had the audacity and the courage to do it at least publicly. Personally, I'd prefer publicly. Have one of the elders or me. But on the whole, this church has loved people. I don't know what God is up to. Not my job to figure it out. My job is to help you and help us listen. My job, my number one job description, is to ride whatever wave the Holy Spirit is stirred and not fall off. And to help you and us together do the same. That is the job of our elders. It's to shepherd us through that. These 8 to 10 to 15 to possibly down the road 30 men and women have to find a community of faith that will not just tolerate them, but that through gracious hospitality, hospitality biblically defined as a love for strangers, making room for others in your life, even the strange ones, will have to set aside. All preferences and preconceived notions, the fact that you can't hear me as much, the fact that they're noisy, the fact that they're getting up and down and opening up doors and all that, the fact that ERT is going to be down there, the fact that ERT is going to be up here and going to be watching where they're going and we're going to all be like, well, and they're going to possibly be labeled and categorized as something unlike us, which is a shame, but I understand that's the reality of the world in which we live. But my question to you, church, and I need you to let me know today because I need to tell Sister Agnes, Because I don't want, as a Christian, those men and women to come into this church and feel anything other than welcomed and wanted. So if we're not going to do that, then I need to know right now so I can tell Sister Agnes to find a different church next week. But if we're going to do that, then we need to know right now so over this next week we can be prayerful and humble so that when we sit at the final table, that is the table of anything other than injustice. Here in a minute. The table that reminds us that all are welcomed into the kingdom of God. That all are invited. That all have a seat at the table. The table that reminds us every week that none of us have the right to choose who sits at this table. I need to know. Because God knows. These men and women don't need to go to another church and be told six weeks from then they have to leave. They don't need to hear that again. That ain't right. That ain't right. So, if you think I'm making a bigger deal out of this than I should, look it around you. And imagine eight to ten intellectually disabled or mentally ill men and women sitting on one pew or two chairs, two, two rows of chairs, 
getting up and down right now as quiet as it is. And you tell me if you're not going to mumble under your breath or wonder what's going on or really wish they'd just sit down and stop spilling the coffee and getting up and down all over the place. It's going to be noticeable here. But too much is at stake to take this for granted. And I've prayed this through and my heart has been wrecked ever since. So my question for us, church, and it's not rhetorical, it's genuinely a question. Are we going to be the church that doesn't ask them to leave? I'm asking going to take more than that what are we going to do are we going to be that church thank you Clifton anybody else can we say yes I tell Allison all the time sometimes I wish I could just be a pastor of some church that's got it all together you know like some uh, some really clean you know mega church experience like I came from you know where, where we can just be under the illusion that everybody's life is hunky dory I wouldn't want to be anywhere else but with you as a church. I know, well, I don't want to say I know because I don't. I really am starting to think that God believes in us. I always have felt that, don't get me wrong. But God is entrusting us with a, with a group of people that no one wanted. He started doing it with homeless friends. And as a result, it's got 21 different churches' attention and a movement has taken place. And he's going to do it with these friends. So let's be that church. Let's love them. Let's not call them our mentally ill friends. Let's not call them our intellectually disabled friends. Let's not categorize them and put them in some place. We don't do that to anybody here. I've never heard somebody say, hey, this is Robin. This is my, um, well, I don't want to pick on a name because it'll sound bad. This is... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know Robin's like, what's he going to say, Garrett? What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Talk to him, talk to him, talk to him now. This is Joe, my gossiping friend. This is John, my mean friend. We don't do that. We don't, we don't label one another by our sins or by our struggles. Let's not do that for them. I praise God for you, church. We have to be the one church that doesn't ask them to leave. We have to be. And I praise God that we can be. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, which actually comes after Matthew chapter 21, which we just read about turning over tables. In this great second coming text, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. Jim, that's powerful. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, I assure you, whatever you did, 
for one of the least of these brothers of mine. You did for me. We are going to learn and see Jesus in the brokenness of this world. Let's stay faithful and welcome the brokenness into our lives. Let's pray.